Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. My guest today is uh, Yamina Saheb. She's a lead author of the uh, upcoming Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. She holds a PhD in energy engineering, and you can now find her lecturing at Sciences Po Paris. Prior to this, she worked at uh, the universities of Münster and Lausanne. She also worked for the Energy Charter Secretariat, the Joint Research Center of the European Commission, and also the International Energy Agency. Yamina, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me here. So Yamina, we are recording this podcast early March 2022 and energy security uh, fueled by the war in Ukraine is on the forefront of the political debate. More than ever, it is clear that Europe needs to reduce its dependency on imported fossil fuels, accelerate the transition to renewable energy sources, electrify heating and provide, a, let's say, a solid framework for clean investment. Yamina, I think you're the perfect guest to discuss all this with me. So we already saw that you have a, quite an impressive resume, but you define yourself very simply as an energy policy analyst. So what brought you there? Oh, that's a long story because now I'm getting old. <laughs> I started actually as an engineer uh, and I learned to do a technical economic optimization of energy and water systems. And then I, uh, I realized my brain was, I was able to understand zero and one. And when I started working in the suburbs, and then I realized that zero and one does not work in the real world. It works only when you are in front of your computer. And I cannot talk to my computer to, to move things forward. So I went to a social science school because I thought that uh, what was missing in my uh, education was social science. And this is how I worked on uh, economics and development economics. I'm interested in development economics because I am from both sides of the, of the world, from the global south and the global north. I was born and raised in Algiers and then moved to Paris. So that's why it's something that is very close to my heart, uh, the development of uh, the, the south But at that time, I, so I went for my PhD. I got scholarship from the French Energy Agency for my PhD in reducing energy consumption in residential buildings in warm climate. So 20 years ago, the climate that we have today in Lyon, for example, or the south of France, is equivalent to the climate, approximately to the climate we had in North Africa. But at that time, my PhD work was not of real interest to the French because they did not realize that uh, actually the south is uh, coming to the north, or at least the, the, the climate in the south was uh, coming to the north. And what was interesting was that I wanted to work on a more interdisciplinary approach. So it's good. Your, your remark about when I define myself as energy policy analyst is, uh, is wrong because I don't do any, I don't do only energy policy because I don't think you can do energy policy without interdisciplinary approach. And this is what I do. So I, I will correct my profile. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> And so what was interesting was that 20 years ago, it was not possible to have any research, university research laboratory in France where you could work on an interdisciplinary approach to energy uh, demand. They did not exist, simply did not exist. 
that was 20 years ago. And then I discovered, but it was too late, that uh, in Denmark, for example, it was possible, but I was, uh, I, I had only one year left for my PhD. I did not want to restart from, uh, from the beginning. But the interesting part is that now I am working on my habilitation thesis uh, to be able to be to apply for professor positions. So I saw that in 20 years, France has changed and the world has changed. And well, from my perspective, the world has changed. And I am facing exactly the same problem. There is no place for people who work on interdisciplinary approach. So you are either in so, uh, social po- uh, political science or economic science or in engineering wh- where I was. And given that I moved, so there is no place for me. So maybe we, I need to create this space where I could be. So there is no space for me. Yeah, that's that's something that I really like about you, that you have been able so far, we, we've known each other for many years now, and you've been able to create the space for you to create some really the particularities of your work, working on different aspects, working uh, with different stakeholders, working at different levels too. And I think it's really, really important. And one of the issue or the criticism that comes very often when talking about, let's say, European policy on on um, energy poverty, which is one of the, also on the big topic I'm working on, is that it's too way too siloed, like the policies addressing this point or this point are are too siloed. And indeed, there are some externalities coming from one policy to the other that are not acknowledged on the other side. And I think you, you would agree with me that we need to kind of break those silos to make things happen. So what would be, let's say, your recommendations on how to break those silos? I think you've been working on energy and mobility uh, brought together. So maybe it's time to dive a little bit on, on this particular topic. So you are right. We are we work on silos. It seems that in the modern world, since the industrialization, we have been put in silos. So uh, science is in silos, policy is in silos, industry is in silos, etc. But the world does not work like that because silos is exactly uh, the problem that I faced when I, I, I graduated first as an engineer, zero and one. So it's exactly the same thing and it cannot work because the real life is different. In the real life, you are an expert, you are mother, uh, you are runner maybe, and you are uh, you do plenty of things. You, we c- you cannot split yourself. You cannot say that marine is only this. That, this does not work. So that's why it does not work from policy perspective. Then what we could do is that uh, it's very, very, very tough to have brain that does not work in silos because if you don't work in silos, so you don't have you, you don't have any. You cannot be anywhere. You are everywhere and anywhere at the same time. So you are a bit welcome, but at the same time, oh la la, we don't really want her or we don't really want this person because she's going to disturb the silo. Because if you work between silos, so you will be disturbing for each of the silos. So this is one of the difficulties and one of the challenges that you face if you work on interdisciplinary approach. So my recommendation is that you have nothing to lose. The world should move to, we need to get rid of the silos. You you have nothing to lose. So if we take the example of energy and mobility poverty, so in 2017, I had this idea to work on, on these two that are considered as two different concepts. And at that time, I remember we organized a workshop in Brussels. My work was funded by European Climate Foundation. And uh, during the workshop, 
most of the people around the table were used to work on energy poverty. And within the energy poverty community, they are used to work only on winter energy poverty. So summer energy poverty was did not exist. And then I remember, so I came with two challenges for them. So I told them that energy poverty is in winter and summer. And I remember one of the reactions from one of the stakeholders was, what do you mean winter, uh, summer energy poverty? Are you pushing to have air conditioners everywhere? And then I talked to the guy, hey, uh, you are from the north. I am from the south. First time for me, having heating systems in each room is a bit strange. But having air conditioner everywhere is a normal thing. You see, it's just a question of perception where you are. Yeah, and that's where it's so important to have perspective coming from really different places, really like different perspectives. And and in, indeed in Brussels, we tend to have really, uh, let's say, white people from Northern Europe. It's it's Male, male white people, usually it was uh, above 40 at that time. Now I think they are most of them above 50. Uh, <laughs> and and the, same, the same way of thinking, the same, the same references, the same school, the same historical uh, uh, knowledge, etc., so that was the reaction that I got. So people said, told me that I was completely crazy. And the other thing what I, what, that was completely crazy is that not only that I said we should consider summer energy poverty, but I also showed, I invited a guy who is expert on uh, climate uh, issues at the European level. I showed that summer energy poverty is an issue in Finland. Can you imagine Finland? No one could think that it's an issue in Finland. And then people said, it does not make sense at all. It did not, it's not that it did not make, it did not make sense to what they know. But people are not open to more. Uh, it happens that after that, uh, it was during the clean energy package, just before the clean energy package discussions. And thanks to uh, MEPs from the south of Europe, from uh, Cyprus and uh, Greece. So they managed to have in the, um, electric, the revised electricity directive, the need for cooling as part of the, how we could define uh, energy poverty. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was, so can you imagine it was a workshop the whole day, etc. Then I told them, actually, and then we need to look at at the same time mobility poverty. And people said, oh, what is that? What the hell is that? Does not exist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Eurostat data shows that it exists. And then people said, no, no, no. And you know what? Uh, We should have discussed mobility poverty that day. But because of what happened about summer energy poverty, because I did insist on summer energy poverty, I am one of the people who, uh, I am sick if the temperature is is above 28 degrees. So I know that I need cooling system. And I am not that old. So, and I always had this problem. So can you imagine with the aging population and people who are sick? Absolutely. I do not have any, any health problem, but when the temperature is above 28, I am sick. Yeah, and I, I mean, already 20 years ago, it was back in 2003, we had like the first uh, enormous heat wave in Europe that killed so many elderly people throughout Europe. And it was 20 years ago, and now it's it has become like every year we have this kind of enormous uh, heat wave. So. And this is what the IPCC report shows, is that in the future we will have more and more of these heat waves and even in, in European countries. And so then, then we decided with my contact from uh, ECF, uh, Patty Fong, that maybe we don't talk about transport poverty here, about mobility poverty. So we did not discuss mobility poverty because it was too much shocking for these people. It was too early. Too, too early. And then we had, uh, so what happened is that uh, we were doing this work uh, uh, for uh, with the Friends of Earth. They wanted to have a policy brief out of this work. And what was interesting was that Friends of Earth, they work for Right for Energy Coalition. Uh, so they took only energy poverty. They did not took the mobility poverty. And if I remember well, if I'm not mistaken, in their brief, 
it was mainly about energy poverty in winter time. So it, it's it's that. But all this is the 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 point is that it, it's very challenging. I'm trying to explain the challenge when you go beyond the silos, but also the fact that it's waste of time for the people of Europe. So we miss the po- opportunity of the clean energy package. And I think we are going to miss the opportunity of the Fit for 55 package. And the problem we have today is that there is no time left to miss opportunities. So from climate perspective, earlier this week on Monday, uh, the second IPCC report, I can explain how the IPCC process works. So the second IPCC report yes, on uh, climate impact and adaptation was out and they provide scientific evidence that we are going more global warming means more impact on the people and on the health of the people. And this is going to occur in Europe as well, in our cities, etc. So that's why my recommendation is those who are able to think outside one silo or the silo where they were trained, just push, continue pushing and bon courage for continue pushing. Yes, that's also exactly what we try to do here in Energetic, uh, having people with uh, different mindsets, different approaches, and people as passionate as you about their topic, Yamina. I find it extremely hard not to be anxious about how policies are designed that seem to be so short-sighted somehow. And as uh, a parent, as uh, as a sister, as an aunt, as uh, just a human being, I find it extremely hard to just keep on going. And But when I see the passion of people like you, it just motivates me to just push for, for something really better because we aim to prove things and, and not uh, degrade things. And uh, that's why I think your the work you are doing is, is so relevant and so important. Yamina, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, really energy and mobility um, poverty nexus, like how you put those two together, uh, how you assess that the challenge at the end of the day is common, that there is only one common challenge linking two things that are siloed for the for the time being. Uh, you call it a double burden. So what it is and why is it important? And can you maybe give a, an example of somebody one day in the life of a person that is affected by this double burden of energy and poverty mobility? Yeah, so what happened in the last uh, 30 and maybe 40 years, uh, it depends uh, which EU country you are, let's say in France, it's the last 30 years, is that we uh, stopped, our government stopped investing in uh, housing, what what is usually called social housing, which is actually because... Uh, you have the right, it is a right, it's an international right to have uh, to have a shelter. But the uh, government stopped investing in that. Instead, what they did was to leave this, which is a public good, uh, to leave it to the private market. By leaving this to the private market, so you have all these developers developing plenty of houses, etc. So the price of the houses went up and uh, the middle class, in the meantime, actually, it's also the same period where we had uh, more people losing uh, their jobs and employed uh, high unemployment rates everywhere or uh, stagnations in terms of income. So you have you don't have really income. You, you, your income then do not allow you anymore to leave uh, in place where you have, uh, for example, in cities or in in uh, dense areas where you have all the essential services. So you have the schools, the hospital, the basic services, the essential services that you, that you need. And we had at the same time marketing campaigns uh, saying that the dream. So the marketers think decide our dreams. 
So they decide that our dream is to have single family home somewhere far away from the center and you have your car, maybe your SUV today. And then every day you commute for everything. If you're, you, if you have a family of two kids and the parents, so you need to have minimum two cars. And then to take your kids to school, you need a car to go for shopping. You need a car. Uh, to go to take uh, for leisure for your kids or uh, music or whatever. You need a car. You need a car everywhere. Yeah, it's very much like the American dream promoted by Don Draper in uh, in Mad Men. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and then, uh, you know, you, there are some st- some surveys, they say that they ask people, uh, what is your dream house? And everyone answers that it's a house, an individual house with a, with a garden. And then you, you don't have, you don't hear your neighbors. It, it's, it's just unbelievable that we humans, we... All animals need to live in community. And then we created a dream where you don't see your neighbor. You don't, your neighbors should disappear. No, no neighbors. So that's why you need, so all this was to build the, the dream of the individual houses. Yeah, it makes me think also of this very racist comment by Chirac in the 90s that uh, that was it was extremely racist. He was saying that basically in the big uh, social housing in the periphery of, of Paris that were inhabited by usually low income and many, many immigrant families that the problem was the noise and the smells, etc. Whereas, well, it's just life, life happening and being in touch with, with each other and being together. And, and somehow this discourse really embodies what, what you said, like the contrary, that it was at that time and maybe still today, it's better to be quiet in your little quiet neighborhood and with people who just look like you and don't make so much noise and don't make so much, let's say, smelly food or whatever. And that's a standard of living that is an aspiration for some people. So Jacques Chirac is a good example because uh, he was mayor of Paris for uh, several years. And when he was mayor of Paris, his main, uh, his biggest action was to get uh, low-income families outside Paris and uh, sending them to the suburb. He did not want low-income families here. And it's only when uh, Bertrand Delanoë became a mayor of Paris, then uh, what the city of Paris started doing was to buy uh, house uh, buildings, to retrofit them, and to turn them into what is called social housing. So, so basically, middle-class or low-middle-class people, those who cannot afford to buy a house, they are living in these houses to create this mixity, actually, because it does not make sense to live, for example, if you take Paris City in the 16th arrondissement where you have only la bourgeoisie. It does not make sense because you need people to do the work and you need interactions. If you don't interact with people, you will be, if you don't interact with uh, most of the, cat- the categories in the society, you cannot be a human being. You cannot behave as a human being. It's just impossible. And then there is also, in parallel to this issue of uh, privatization of um, of housing, we had liberalization of the energy sector that happened at the same time. Because energy poverty, for example, it has been created by the policies. It, it's just we have to be clear about that. And the mobility poverty as well. And then at the same time, we have been encouraged in this uh, in the last uh, three uh, three decades to become owner occupier of our houses owners of our houses like the model is the bourgeoisie model that you become owner but it does not make sense at all to be owner of your flat i am an owner of my flat but i know it does not make sense at all because and i'm saying that being really uh, honest because The flat you need when you are a student is different from the flat you need when you start your adult life, is different from the flat you need when you have a kid, and it will be different from the flat you will need when you become old, because your needs are different. But 
because we were pushed to become owners of our flats. So this means that it's more difficult for us to move, to change. If we would have a system that allowed us, that would allow us to move based on our needs, then you don't need to become owner. It will be a service, actually, like we, we talk about mobility as a service, but housing as well should be a service, actually. It's not, you don't need to be owner of that and you need to be organized. But given that we liberalized our economy, we said no more public sector, etc. So they, give, they have given everything to private sector. I'm sorry, private sector is not about delivering on human rights. Private sector is about making profit. And if policies do not intervene to deliver on human rights, and housing and mobility is human rights, then we end up with mobility, with a dual mobility, uh, dual poverty, actually. Yeah, which will happen when somebody is totally, let's say, dependent on using their car uh, to get from one place to the other. And then when they arrive at home, uh, their little pavillon in the banlieue or whatever, they're like very, very similar places uh, with uh, very standard homes, etc., that are poorly insulated. And then they, they end up not being able to pay either for their fuels, to for the car, or for uh, heating the home or cooling the home. Yes, that's important. And then you have to make sacrifice all along the line on education, on food, on health, on also on the jobs, because there are certain jobs you can't take because they are too far away. And since you're trapped with your uh, loan and your mortgage for your home, you cannot make those choices. And this is exactly why we had the Yellow Movement in France. Yeah, the Yellow Vest, yeah. The Yellow Vest Movement is the people who were the first people who were involved in the Yellow Vest Movement uh, are people who had jobs. They worked on the dream of single family home in the suburb somewhere in France and a big car and then they got locked. And then you increase the tax, the carbon tax. These people, they, they, there are no papers say explaining, they interviewed some of them. So they are not against environmental tax. They realize that we need to have environmental uh, policies, but it's just too much for them. They cannot afford to do all these things. And they are just middle working class, may, maybe low middle class, but they are not unemployed people. This is why the Yellow Vest movement is a very interesting one. And maybe one point is that the commission proposal of extending the EU ETS to housing and transport, from my perspective, is going to expand the Yellow Vest movement from France to the rest of Europe. But of course, our bureaucrats are not able to understand that. Can you explain what the ETS is? It's for emission transfer system. So it's an emission trading system that was uh, that exists since 2005, and that was implemented for uh, polluting industries. Uh, so uh, they had allowances. So these industries, if you have uh, you have certain number of emissions that you can emit during the year, if you emit more uh, during a period, sorry, not so one year but several years, if you emit more, then uh, you need to buy allowances from another industry that does not emit enough. So it's basically a right to pollute. And how would that apply to households? Yeah. So basically, it's right to pollute that was given to our industry with the idea that if we don't do that, the industry will go out of Europe, will go uh, to other countries. In practice, the industry, the most polluting industry went out anyway, but because they go out for other reasons, uh, you have uh, cheap labor outside Europe and they go where human rights are not respected. Just, just put it simple like that. And they consider that environment and climate issues are part of human rights. So Industry, if you'd like to make profit, extra profit, if you'd like to become 
extremely, extremely rich, not just to make what you need to live with. And so you need to go where human rights are not respected. It's another, it's modern colonialism, actually. Mm -hmm. It's not called colonialism, but it's modern colonialism. So the point is, in practice, this industry went out. Uh, but of course, they say that it's... Uh, so they, they had to revise the EU ETS several times. The commission is still dreaming of a successful EU ETS, but it's very difficult to demonstrate that it's successful. And then now they decided to extend this to transport and uh, buildings with the arguments that these are two difficult sectors to decarbonize. So they will put the burden again on the people, on the citizens who are locked so not only we are locked because of uh, 30 or 40 years of wrong policies from environmental perspective, but by putting the, by extending the EU ETS, they will put the burden not on the middle class who can afford to pay the energy bill, but on the low middle class and, and the lowest ones, uh, the, the non-middle class, those below, who cannot afford to pay the energy bill, who have been pushed outside the cities. So the commission is proposing as a mitigation option only putting in place the climate social fund. But so the only good point I find in the Fit for 55 in the whole story is that for the first time, the commission, we have a proposal from the commission that makes a reference to energy and mobility poverty. That's the first time. So big bravo to the commission. <laughs> and then the drawback of the commission work is that when they make this reference, they don't say that this already exists. While it exists already, this is what the index I developed show, they just say that this may exist because we will extend the EU ETS to housing and uh, transport. But actually, it's going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's say that's something I appreciate out of uh, this Fit for 55 is that there are also more considerations about uh, the uh, the racism and about the systemic discrimination that are also root causes of, of energy poverty and uh, vulnerability in the energy sector in general. But you're totally right. They are kind of missing the point and uh, it's as if they didn't know your work and the index you've developed. Can you tell us a little bit more about this index? And really, like for somebody who doesn't know what it is all about, explain it to your son, please. Okay. <laughs> uh, he does not understand yet, very well now. He's too young. But okay, we'll try. So the index is about looking to the causes of energy poverty and the causes of mobility poverty. And for each of these causes, see how our countries have been progressing over time based the data that are available. So the index is composed of two sub-indexes, one for energy poverty, and in energy poverty, so I include uh, one to, uh, winter energy poverty, summer energy poverty, the impact of energy bills, and the quality of the housing. Uh, combining all this uh, data from these four indicators, uh, using a methodology developed, proven methodology developed by the OECD, to uh, develop a composite indicator, then what is the value for each country? And then you have ranking of countries. So it does not give you the number of people suffering from energy poverty. It gives you a ranking of the countries. And I did it to make things comparable because otherwise, when you look at, for example, winter energy poverty is about uh, how people answer the question if their home was warm or not in winter time. So it depends. For each indicator that you use, you have... Uh, X number of people suffering from this indicator, from this, uh, this parameter. But by combining both, then you know where each country stands. And by doing that, you have Sweden is ranked first. And then you have uh, Eastern European countries, Bulgaria and Hungary ranked by the end. France is not very good. Huh? 
uh, we are ranked nine for uh, uh, we are ranked uh, ten for energy poverty. And then I do the same for mobility poverty. And you can do this per decile, for, so for different income categories. Uh, I have first done it for, per income quantiles, and now I, am, I have done it recently for, per decile, because per decile you see more things, actually. And then I do exactly the same for transport. And what is interesting for mobility poverty is that, for example, the French uh, Energy Poverty Observatory, to my knowledge, is the only uh, energy poverty uh, observatory that includes data that reports on uh, the cost of the mobility, the energy cost of the mobility. But they completely neglect people who face mobility poverty because of uh, either the cost of public uh, transport or public transport is not available. So they focus only on the individual cars. So you see, they made something good. They included mobility poverty, but they included only one parameter. They didn't include the other ones. And this time uh, we were able to have data from Eurostat to include uh, four parameters, uh, three parameters for mobility for uh, those using public transport and one for those who are locked in their cars. And then you combine them in the same way. And then you have ranking as well for mobility poverty. And in this case, for, for the first this for the first decile, France is ranked 19. So it's not good. And then uh, I combine the two. The two indexes, two sub-indexes, because given that people are in silos, they cannot sync the two together. They cannot sync everything together. So I try to give to each silo what they could understand, but they are still not yet using the index. And then by combining both, for example, France will be ranked nine. So it's not well ranked. And you see, uh, the important thing in the case of energy poverty, it was your point about policies are. Uh, it's a bit frustrating because they do not they do not address the real problems actually. So if you look at, for example, France in terms of energy poverty, so France uh, could be we could consider that France has been leader in implementing uh, in putting in place some good practices. So for example, France I found out that France is uh, the only EU country who has an agency uh, Lana solely dedicated to renovating buildings occupied by low income families. This is good practice because then you could imagine that uh, all the fundings go there etc. But then in France and in all other EU countries because uh, the energy performance of building directive is very very weak for buildings for existing buildings and actually it works against the renovation of existing buildings in reality. So France, uh, we don't have requirements to renovate existing buildings to uh, zero energy, uh, zero, nearly zero energy buildings. Why we could, but we don't have this requirement. The question is why we don't have this requirement. Because all the stakeholders around make income, make profit out of uh, shallow renovation. Mm-hmm. So no one is going to ask for uh, full renovation. Because otherwise, they need to change their business model. They don't want to make, change their business model. They are making enough money. So basically, France, for example, has this agency. But then this agency does not deliver on the final result because, because of the EPPD. But France could go beyond the EPPD. Unfortunately, France did not go. And at this stage, there is no country that goes beyond the EPPD for existing buildings. And in the 5055, it's going to be... So not only we have this extension of the EU ETS, but also in the EPPD, they included uh, MAPS, Minimum Energy Performance Requirement, and uh, they require residential buildings to be renovated uh, to class uh, F and E. No, no, it's the two last last classes. So basically by doing that, they are going to lock low income in, in, in energy poverty and buildings in carbon. But people who pushed for uh, for MAPS do not understand that. And people who pushed for MAPS, just to be honest, are industry. Industry making income out of shallow renovation has pushed for maps. They managed to have think tanks and uh, foundations uh, following them. And now this is the speech that you need maps. 
But actually, maps exist already in uh, in plenty of countries. They do not deliver, and they cannot deliver. Yeah. Uh, maps are for minimum energy performance standards, and uh, yes, and EPPD is for the uh, renovation uh, directive. Energy performance of building directive. Okay. That's the policy uh, at Energetic to be uh, jargon-free, but it doesn't happen. Uh, sometimes uh, there are some something happening and it, that's uh, also part of the deal. Yamina, there is also one topic that I would like to discuss with you. And I know that you have a lot to say about that. So Yamina, you are whistleblowers against the Energy Charter Treaty. You've reported uh, several times that it was a disaster threatening the transition to clean energy. This energy charter treaty is totally unknown for most of the people. So what is it and why do getting out of this treaty does matter now more than ever? So this treaty exists since the 90s. I always heard about this treaty, but I always thought that it was something Russian or something with Russia. And I was I was not completely wrong, but uh, but actually you need to dig a little deeper to uh, understand that it's not just Russian. Uh, that's why it's linked to the current crisis. So this treaty was put in place when the Soviet Union did collapse, and with the three goals in reality, one of them is ensuring its energy security for Western countries. So at that time we were only EU 15. So the flow of energy of fossil energy uh, from the former Soviet Union. And then to have this energy in our countries, so our companies like Total, Shell, BP, etc., they had to invest in emerging new republics like Ukraine, etc. And to do this investment, investors asked to, for, to have security, to have their investment secured and to secure their investment. So there is a tool that was invented after by Dutch guy, I forgot the name. Uh, it's called Investor State Dispute Settlement. And it was invented when uh, well, European countries had to decolonize what is today known as Global South. And then uh, they wanted to keep a control on the resources in these countries. And the Investor State Dispute Settlement allows investors to sue governments, not in the, in the court of the country, because these countries... They were considered as not uh, neutral, exactly. So not uh, the justice system that we have here. And then, uh, so they were allowed to sue them in private arbitration. And this private arbitration, uh, usually they ask for uh, not just to pay uh, compensation for the investment that was made, but also for the profit, the potential profit that they would have made if you would not have changed your policies. So I will give you an example related to energy poverty, then it, it, it should be easier to understand for the audience. So, for example, you have uh, electricity prices that are, let's say, at 50 cents per kilowatt hour for, for the people. And then uh, you make changes in the policies as government. And this means that it will reduce because you have energy poverty. So in the current situation, for example, our government needs to reduce, we need to reduce the electricity prices. So you make these changes because you have, you are facing an energy poverty situation. Yeah, you need to make the, the energy prices more affordable. Exactly. So what will happen as an investor, uh, I will make less money, of course, less profit. So if your country is part of the ECT, so I can sue your country in private arbitration, it happened already, because I am making less profit because you made your, uh, you obliged me to sell electricity at lower price. Wow. You see? 
Wow. And it already happened in Eastern European countries uh, that it was EDF France, for example, who did sue uh, some governments in the East, in what is today, they are part of the EU today, these countries, uh, because of energy, of uh, exactly it was for uh, energy affordability issue. So this is one trap in the ECT. But there is another trap that I discovered when I had the opportunity to work on it, is that uh, the ECT protects uh, investment in the energy supply no matter uh-huh. if the supply is from fossil fuels or not. does not okay. matter. So what it means, it means that the ECT is protecting investment in greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, This is what it means. Because if you protect investment in fossil fuels, you, this means you protect investment in greenhouse gas em- emissions. So somehow it also applies totally to the current crisis with Russia. It's exactly. kind of protecting the Russian's investment. Exactly. And actually, so the case of Russia is interesting because the case of the crisis is interesting because there is a case that is Nord Stream 2. Everyone yeah. is talking about Nord Stream 2. So Nord Stream 2 was... Uh, it's a pipeline. Yeah. yeah, it's a wrong German initiative during Angela Merkel time from energy perspective because it's about uh, securing the supply after... Uh, it was after we had the first... because. This is not the first Ukrainian crisis, mm-hmm. but there was a, a previous crisis. And then, uh, so the idea is that the pipelines, the gas pipeline, do not they bypass Ukraine. They go through the Baltic Sea, and then the gas comes to to Germany. And Germany considers that because the German energy transition is about moving from coal to gas. It's not about moving from coal to renewables. Huh? Okay. So it was designed in this way. And then in the meantime, they did shut the nuclear power plants, but it's not really because of nuclear power plants that this, that they are in this mess and they created the whole mess for Europe. So then uh, they had this idea. So Nord Stream 2 is the company who has been building this uh, pipeline and the pipeline now is built. So And then in the meantime, we had in 2018, 2019, the revision of the gas directive. So Germany, when Germany decided to go for Nord Stream 2, did not, they did not consult with other European countries. And maybe something that I need to come back to, that the energy transition cannot be a national energy transition. It should be European. So to overcome the problem that the Germans created with the Russians, so basically they have empowered the Russians, uh, Russia through this gas pipeline. Uh, so what, uh, what they did is that in the gas directive, they included the requirements to unbundle different companies because Nord Stream 2 is Gazprom. Project Gazprom is the Russian national gas company, and Gazprom does everything: extraction, distribution, uh, does everything. And in the EU, in the EU directive, they included that they extended the unbundling requirement that we have in our countries. So you need to split that. So the production should be different company from the distribution, etc. They extended this to third countries, and this means that they extended this to uh, Gazprom to Nord Stream two project. So Nord Stream 2, what they did, Gazprom, what they did was that they sued the EU as a whole from Switzerland because Switzerland is party to the Energy Charter Treaty because of the implementation of the unbundling directive, the, uh, the unbundling requirement in the gas directive. So we already have a case, and then they also went to the court in Germany. And interesting part of the story is that when there was discussion about the gas directive, is that the lobbyists uh, from Shell, etc. So there is now an investigation from a Dutch journalist that shows that Shell, for example, worked hard to make sure that in case we are sued, in case there is any issue with Nord Stream 2, so it will be dealt with in Germany, not at the EU level. Because if it would have been at the EU level, this means the decision should be taken by the EU European Council. But mm-hmm. now the decision is to be taken by the Chancellor of Germany. Wow. And what you see is that 
the the logical thing to do when uh, Ukraine was inv- invaded by uh, by Russia was to stop Nord Stream two right yeah. away. So the German Chancellor was hesitating. Why? Because he is just scared of being sued. Because Germany has already been sued three times already, and they they have already paid. Um, they, when you are sued, it's for uh, Germany has been sued in total for six six billion of euros. It's a lot of money. It's taxpayers' money. Yeah, and I mean it's the money that could be invested in uh, exactly. renewable energy, in uh, release performance retrofitting of the housing and really for addressing energy and mobility poverty and uh, clean transport, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, can we say that we are officially um, in a very, very difficult situation now? We are in a very, very bad situation. And I think we don't know what is going to happen with Nord Stream. So they did not stop Nord Stream. This is what is the interesting part, because some journalists reported that uh, the end of Nord Stream 2, it's not the end. They just put on hold the certification of the project because they need to think about how to get out of the mess they created. Yeah, they need to think about the next move, yeah. Exactly. So I don't know what they are going to do. It is likely that Germany will be sued for... uh, There are exceptions in this treaty that if there is war, uh, so you should not be able to sue. Maybe the rules do not apply. But you know, the the funny thing is that the arbitrators is private people, eh? private lawyers. So they make money out of your case. So the more you get, the more the private lawyer will get money. So I am sure that Gazprom Nord Stream 2 project, they will go to see any private arbitrator. They will find a way to make a case out of what happened now in Germany. So how can we get out of this mess? Is there a way we can get out of this energy charter treaty and uh, just move on and just invest in renewables because that's what we need now more than ever? So, for example, Italy is the only EU country that uh, went out of the, that, that that did withdraw from the ECT. They withdrew in 2016. When you withdraw from the ECT, uh, the, this uh, triggers what we call the sunset clause. This means all the investments that uh, that were made in your country before the withdrawal are still protected for 20 years more. And Italy typically has been sued after the withdrawal. And Italy has been sued, for example, because in the south of Italy, citizen action, civil society managed to uh, have in the law to avoid, to end, to ban actually exploration of fossil fuels in the sea. But there is a British company who had the license for exploration. So when the government had to implement uh, what the citizens wanted, actually, which is the logical thing to do, so they have been sued. So Italy has been sued because of that. So, and given that uh, we have now 146 claims under the ECT and uh, More than half are intra-EU claims between uh, an EU investor and another EU country. And most of them have been triggered against Spain. They have been triggered when Spain adapted the feed-in tariff for renewables. So it's exactly like the story of um, adjusting your electricity prices. So uh, the, when, after the financial crisis and the, the drop in the cost of renewables, so all countries had to revise their uh, feed-in tariff, their incentive for renewables. So Spain has been sued more than 40 times because they adjusted the renewables. And this is actually a question of good governance. Good government is a government because uh, feed-in tariff is our taxes, is the taxes of citizens. 
if the tax is uh, it's always a burden but if uh, if the benefits that you get as a society uh, does not pay for the burden it's too much for the burden so you need to adjust it this is what spain did and then they have been sued so now countries are uh, so france for example asked in 20 to uh, end of 2020 asked the commission to assess the legal implications of collective withdrawal. They have been arguing for collective withdrawal of EU countries. Why? Because if we withdraw altogether, this means that we can cancel the sunset clause between us. And why it is important? It's important because uh, more than 60% of the, what is considered as foreign investor, if I, if I invest in Italy as a French citizen, I will be considered as foreign investor and they will be protected by the ECT. So more than 60% of foreign investors in EU countries are uh, made by Europeans. So that's why if we we can cancel if we cancel the sunset clause, this means that the protection of more than sixty percent of the investment will disappear for twenty years, and then our countries will have the freedom to act to regulate actually because this treaty does not give the right to regulate to governments. Basically, this treaty, if I would translate it in one word for kids, I would say this treaty means uh, foreign investors put in place the policies they want in your country, and if you they are not happy, you have to pay. And you pay billions of euros. So there is there is a solution, but now this solu- the commission is not does not seem to be in favor of this solution, the collective withdrawal. So they produced finally analysis about the collective withdrawal, the implications, but these analyses are not available for us. So there is no transparency. So and the other issue with this treaty is that uh, it's nothing. There is no transparency. We don't know what's going on. People do not know what's going on. Yeah, it's um, it's really the uh, unethical part of um, of energy, and it's really challenging, and that would really push for a more democratized energy system and energy communities, etc. And that's that's really really important, and what the people here invited at Energetic have been pushing for it as well. So I am sure that there will be uh, some follow-up about this because I think the topic is extremely important and relevant and there is not enough uh, publicity around it. And I mean, it's I understand that it's really hard to say to our government, do this or do that or ask them to do this or that if they are uh, they have this Damocles word around their head about paying for something they would actually don't want to pay for. And uh, it creates a lot of debts, it creates a lot of, uh, of bad investments and a lot of, of challenges of for now and uh, for the future generations. So, Yamina, thank you so much for all these explanations. Well, do you have like uh, some hope uh, to just finish this uh, the recording of this podcast? Because I think we need some hope somehow. Yes, the hope are the young people. So uh, you said that I lecture at Sciences Po Paris and I lecture every Friday. And it's just, you know, when you go, they are around 22, 23. And these people are full of hope, full of energy to change the world. And these are the people we need to invest in. So empowering uh, the young generation, they don't need to go through the whole process that I I went through and my generation went through. So I think the role of my generation is to empower the youngest one with, uh, with facts, with science. And these are the people I think that will change the world. We are just an input providers. Yeah, and I think they are much better than the, the previous generation that uh, breaks silos and just define themselves in their own terms. And I think it's a very beautiful and encouraging way to finish this podcast. So thank you so much, Yamina. It was, uh, well, I learned a lot. Uh, so thank you very, very much. And I'll see you soon. 
Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.